4 p.m. Pacific time, um, and 7 p.m. Eastern time, and discuss all things probate related, um, both both how to handle probates and how to avoid probates. Now, hold on a second. Oh, there we are. Have some technical issues here, people. Sorry about that. Okay, now we're back on, and everybody's in, and uh, probate. Ah! One of those days, I'm so sorry. Work hard, prepare. I had things set between minutes at time. Probateweekly.com is a website if you want to register, come in live on the Zoom. We'd love to have you participate. Love to have you live. Raise your hand, ask questions, hit the chat box. Or you can normally watch on YouTube. Now, for some reason today, it's not streaming to YouTube. I'm not sure what the issue is, but you know, it is, it is, uh, I'm sorry, I hurt your ear, Mark Pedroza, uh, frustrated. But if you can't watch it, normally go to episodes.probate.weekly. You'll see the past episodes. We have a group, uh, Probate Weekly is our Facebook group. It's free to join. We have 2,700 members around the country. And you can post questions, challenges. If you're looking for referrals, you have referrals, questions, free coaching, feel free to join in there. Um, I also have a program, Get Probate Cash. We talk about how to use probate advances as a tool to help you build your business. And let's see, this is our, uh, our, our uh, sponsor on the Probate Cash program is Inherit Now. If you're interested in uh, service to help your customers get advance money of the probates, $10,000, $15,000 up front. They have to pay the money back until they close the probate out. Uh, then we can help them with that. Love to talk to you about that if you're interested. Really excited to have today a special guest. Um, and I think, you know, the thing that I like about it is kind of how I came to know him. Um, I used to go to court every day. When I started this process, uh, my coach was uh, Chad Corbett, still is. And advise me if you want to learn and be an expert in probate, go to court, see what really happens, so you know your customer's experience. And one day outside the courtroom, I had a chance to chat up a nice attorney who was obviously very knowledgeable and seemed to be cut above. We stayed in touch ever since. He's been in this program before. I also ran into him recently at a real estate investing event because he's also, in addition to being a estate planning attorney and a probate attorney, he's also a real estate investor, so he knows our business. Um, Bill Hayes of the Hayes Law Firm in Pasadena. Bill, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for having me, Bill. And I still, I love that picture in the background of the freeway, which I think is looking wow. southbound to downtown LA. Maybe from, is that the 101 or the five freeway going south? That's the 101. Yeah, I love, I love old, I love old pictures. Yeah, so if I open it up, you can see City, City Hall. I believe there was a time when City Hall by law had to be the tallest building in Los Angeles up until about, I think 1980 or so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I live in an area where you can kind of see downtown Los Angeles, and I've watched the skyline develop over the years. Wow, very nice. So before we get into the details, give us a little background. How did you end up in the practice of law, and specifically, how did you end up in estate planning? Well, I started out as an entertainment attorney, and I did that for, I don't know, 12, 15 years. And I worked at one point for a boutique firm that represented a lot of people in the industry. Uh, entertainment and uh, music as well as film. And one of the clients was an old movie actress, Susan Hayward, who uh, had at one point won the Academy Award for Best Actress. And when she died, uh, I was asked to handle the probate of, of that estate, not because I was so good at probate because no one else wanted it. Um, and I was a friend of her son and he had asked me to do this. And uh, that's where I first had any experience with estate planning. And what I really discovered was that I really liked it because I liked working with families a lot more than I liked working with entertainers. So I've been doing that ever since. 
they got involved with her as an entertainer. And then how did that lead to estate planning specifically? Well, I handled the probate of her estate. So I, I had never, never done a probate before, but that was my introduction. Got it. Got it. What, what not to do is let it go to probate. And so how did you get from what, letting it what not to do to getting to what to do? Well, one of the things I know not to do is to just have an estate, especially one of her size, with just a will. It, right. it, it makes no sense because if you have a will only, you are guaranteed to go through the probate court process. Having a will guarantees that you have to go through probate. And I don't think that's um, that fact is uh, uh, captured by many people. So I often have had people say, well, I have a will. I don't have to go through probate. Well, that's, of course, quite the opposite. If for a person like her, she should have had a trust and she would have avoided the entire process. I think that's the number one misconception in probate is that a will avoids probate, right? That's correct. It is. And so the estate plan does it. So it, describe a little bit. What's the estate planning process look like? I get together with you ahead of time. And what is it kind of, I always tell people it's kind of like an LLC or a safe deposit box. You're buying a, a box or tool that you create and define. And then you've got to put the things you want to save in the box and put the box in the right location and have the lock on the box and all the other things you would need. How do you describe it to customers? Well, I always think of an estate plan as being something that not if you're going to need it, you will need it at some point in time. I mean, right. it's like an insurance policy. You know, if you buy a, a health insurance policy, you know, maybe you'll need it and maybe you won't. Um, with a life insurance policy, you certainly don't want to use it, but at some point you may need that life insurance policy. With an estate plan, you basically have planned for that day that we all know will come. I mean, as I always jokingly say, you know, in California, the uh, death rate is 100%. We, nobody gets out alive. So that we, if, we, if we know that, if we know that we're going to go through this process, you have to plan. So when I talk about doing an estate plan, what an estate plan is, is something that is comprised of a number of different documents. The principal document being a trust. And a trust is a document that is revocable or amendable by the creator. And in the trust, you talk about who will be your successor trustees, meaning the people who take over your affairs if you're disabled or upon your death. You talk about who your beneficiaries will be and what conditions might you have for those beneficiaries to receive whatever bequest you're making to them. You'll also talk about who's going to be your caregiver in the event of your disability. And statistically, seven out of 10 people over the age of 65 will have long-term care health problems. Mm -hmm. And 40% of that number will wind up in nursing homes. So if you, if you know that those numbers exist, and this is from the uh, Federal Department of Health, not, not from me, um, and it's the same statistic that is carried through all of the uh, uh, long-term care insurance companies. So if you know that that's going to be the number that uh, impacts us all, you're not talking about possibilities, you're talking about probabilities. You, you know, you're more likely to have long-term care health problems than not. So if you don't have a plan that incorporates that into what you are going to do for your life, then you really haven't done anything. So when we do an estate plan, we want to, in, in addition to making sure that you have a plan that uh, uh, takes care of you if you should become disabled, 
You want to have a plan that makes sure that there's a way for you to pay for those long-term care medical expenses that come with aging. And of course, when we talk about planning, we, we, people think, well, I have health insurance. That'll, that'll take care of my needs. Or they think in some vague way that Medicare is going to take care of the health needs. Well, that's not a reality because Medicare will only take care of 100 days of long-term care. So if you don't have those avenues to take care of yourself, you better have another way of how you're gonna pay for the, the medical expenses that come as you grow older. And uh, that's one of the things that we do in, as part of uh, our plan. So you, you'll have the trust, you'll have a will. There's a document called a pour over will. And it's unlike the type of will that we typically think of uh, <clears throat> when we uh, think about a will, you know, I hereby leave my earthly possessions to this person or that person. A pour over will is one that is used only in conjunction with a trust. And largely it's meant to make sure that if you acquire assets after you do your estate plan, but you forget to title those assets in the name of your trust. And remember that if you don't title the assets in the name of your trust, the trust has no impact on those assets. So if you have acquire assets, let's say you buy, open up a bank account or buy a piece of property and you put it in your individual name as opposed to that of your trust, well, those assets are subject to go through probate. And um, the pour over will would enable your representative to go into court and say, uh, Your Honor, uh, uh, Mrs. Smith um, did not intend for this asset to go through probate. Uh, and so pursuant to this pour over will, we are asking the court to pour that asset over into the trust to avoid the probate process. So in addition to the trust, the will, we have powers of attorney, powers of attorney for financial matters, powers of attorney for healthcare. Powers of attorney for financial matters is variously named uh, as durable power of attorney or property power of attorney or financial power of attorney, all the same documents, all, same, all mean the same thing. And there you will name someone to handle your affairs, those assets that are kept out of the trust, as a number of assets are kept out of the trust, insurance policies, annuities, IRAs, those are not assets that we typically put into a trust. We, because the reason being is because you have designated beneficiaries. You have named who you want to receive those assets. But what we do is make the trust the final beneficiary so that that asset, if those beneficiaries were to die, uh, will not have that asset go through probate. Um, so the, the financial power of attorney is going to make sure that you empower somebody to, to access your account to make sure your utility bills continue to be paid while you're sick or your mortgage and so forth. Because of course, creditors are notoriously unsympathetic to your health issues. They want their money, right? right. So um, that's what the financial power is, is about. And of course, the healthcare power speaks for itself. Um, you are naming someone to kind of act as your representative in dealings with doctors and hospitals and so forth. And one other document that's important with an estate plan is uh, the community property agreement. With the community property agreement, you are really uh, creating a document that is meant to ensure that the, if, for instance, with a, a married couple, that each spouse's wishes with regard to that asset uh, are, are, um, are honored. Uh, most people, as couples, when they buy a home, for instance, they buy it in joint tenancy. 
And when one spouse dies, there's only one owner. Well, what that does in effect is make those owners lose $250,000 of capital gains tax exclusion on the appreciated value of that asset. And so if you bought that, if a couple buys a house for $100,000 and over the years it's now $600,000, well, as homeowners, each owner is entitled to $250,000 of exclusion against the capital gains on the appreciation for that asset. So there's $500,000 of, of uh, capital gains tax that they can, can avoid. Um, but if you kept that property in joint tenancy and one person dies, you lose $250,000. So <clears throat> that's, that's always an important document to remember when doing real estate. Now, look, you covered a lot there, and, and um, I go a little slower because um, uh, these are big concepts. So let's talk. I made a list of a couple to go back and recap. Number one, putting assets in the plan. So the way I try to describe it to people is certain assets, there's no benefit to being in a plan. You mentioned insurance because you can designate a beneficiary, and I think they're not taxable. Bank accounts below a certain dollar amount can be just transferred a designated beneficiary who can get those assets. But it, the, the plan only affects, it's kind of like a safe deposit box. It only helps you in case you put the assets in the plan, right? That's why you have to deed assets into the plan. That's why you have to deed real estate in particular into a plan. Now, I know there's an exception, and, and, and that's a different wicket to deal with. But in general, um, what's the consequence of not putting, say, real estate assets in the plan versus leaving it outside the consequence is that it will have to go through probate and of course it will be subjected to all the costs of probate and the fees of probate if they kept it in their plan in a trust they can avoid all those costs and fees as well as the delays that are involved with probate and i, I think that people say well it's not a problem because if you forget to put it in there is a, a process in California specifically called the Hegstead petition where you can go put it back in, but that's like probate in that you have to file, it takes six months to get your first hearing date. There's a process you have to go, and it's handled in probate court, imagine that. So really, it doesn't really avoid probate, it kind of is an alternative process an attorney might counsel you to consider, but you're really going back to probate court if you leave it out of the, out of the, out of the plan, correct? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, a lot of people consider the Hexstad petition kind of a fail safe for those people who forget to put assets into their trust. But again, you got, you're going to incur the costs and the delays, right. and be involved right. with the court system to do right. that. Right. You know? It's a fail safe. It's not, it's not a victory. It's a yeah, fail exactly. safe. Yeah. Operative word fail. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the other thing, I think the main reason or one of the things I want to talk about today that in the past we kind of you know, I, I watched your episode and I, I kind of realized that I didn't get into much detail on that. I think you have some real expertise on is the Medicare plan. You mentioned in passing the incredible costs of medical care. And um, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I've had to see that a few times through with parents and in-laws and even my wife to some degree. You have to look at those ideas and plans. Um, so there is certain medical care that gets paid for when you're over 65, right? And there's other medical care you can get if you have no other assets. But what if you're kind of in the middle? You're not wealthy enough to pay for it, but you're you're not wealthy. I'm sorry, you're wealthy enough, not wealthy enough where you can pay for everything. And you're wealthy enough, you're not going to qualify for 
Medicare, which is going to be a Medi-Cal, I mean, which is for income-based, what are options that people have to plan to maximize opportunities to get uh, get benefits? Sure. Well, in our office, we practice a specialized form of estate planning known as elder law. You probably have heard that phrase and not exactly known what it means. But largely what it's about is making sure that as you get older, that, that long-term care expenses don't uh, ruin your golden years. Uh, and that's what happens for most people. I mean, like statistically, 66.5% of all bankruptcies are due to medical bills. I mean, that's, that's huge, obviously. And a large part of that comes from people not dealing with the issue of long-term care. Um, so if you have a middle-class person or upper-middle-class person who has uh, more assets than would allow them to qualify for Medicaid, there are strategies that 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 person can implement to transfer those assets out of their name, perhaps to individuals, but more often than not, if they're a person of, of substance, uh, of substantial assets, they might want to create an irrevocable trust that we refer to often as a Medicaid trust. And you transfer those assets, maybe if, even if you already have a living trust, uh, or if you have no planning at all in place, you transfer those assets into that Medicaid trust, you have people that you know and trust as the uh, trustees of that trust, as well as the beneficiaries of the trust. So if you are, say, a married person with children or not, doesn't you don't have to be married at all. If you have a child or friend who you ha have total trust in, you, that's the person you want to have involved with your Medicaid trust, because basically what you're going to be doing with Medicaid planning is transferring all of the assets that would otherwise disqualify you from receiving Medicaid into that irrevocable Medicaid trust. And your friend or your family member that you trust is in charge of that trust. Now, at that point, you have gotten the assets out of your name that would disqualify you from receiving Medicaid. And, you know, you've been laboring with this issue. You know, currently the average for one month stay in, in a nursing home in California is almost $11,000 a month. And it goes up a couple of percent every year. So, you know, that's something that will break you, whether you're middle class, and it certainly will put a dent in your life if you're upper middle class. And so if you find yourself in that position, there are strategies that you can put into play that will take the burden of those medical bills off your shoulders if it's taking you down that drain pretty, pretty slowly. And you can save those assets, create a legacy for your family, have something to pass on to your loved ones. You qualify for Medicaid and that Medicaid trust, the proceeds that you put into that trust can be used for your benefit by the people who are running that Medicaid trust as long as it's not used to pay for those uh, Medicaid bills or any of those kinds of medical expenses. And that protects the spouse because you might have assets that are joint and one spouse has severe medical expenses. And even if you have barely enough money to manage all that, the surviving spouse you know, needs to live and oftentimes is older and, and that, that was the retirement that gets, and it's, and it's amazing. One of my very best friends was one of the uh, most successful mortgage bankers in Albuquerque. 
very successful for a lot of years, bought a lot of real estate, had a lot of assets, didn't plan properly. He said to me, Bill, you can't believe how fast these expenses eat up your assets. He goes, what are you going to do? You're going to not pay for life-saving care for your spouse? Of course you are. And yet it gets to a point where it really impacts and impacts you at the end of your life. And the stress of that, I think, caused him to pass before his wife, in fact. So these are very important issues. What's a what's a an asset amount that makes sense for somebody to consider this kind of planning that it's enough that it makes sense that they should be talking to someone like you about saying something like this up? Well, I mean, it, let, let's say you're in a basic uh, facility, I mean, because you've had disabilities that don't allow you to be at home. And let's say you're you're on the low end of the spectrum. You know, you're spending $8,000 a month. You know, at the end of the year, you, you spend a, close to $100,000, $96,000. If that is okay for you, and you don't mind spending, you know, almost $100,000 a year, and we're not talking about the pharmaceuticals that you might need or anything else. So let's say $100,000 a year. If that's okay with you, you don't need to do this kind of planning. But that's not most people. If, if you wind up seeing all that you've worked your entire life for uh, go to medical bills and you know there's an alternative, you certainly will choose the alternative. And that's when a person should consider this kind of planning. Well, and the, the problem is when that starts, having been to the process a couple of times, you don't, first off, you don't necessarily know how long it's gonna go for. You don't know if they're there for a month or two, or they could be there in your hope for a long time. But if it's a long time, it's gonna cost you a lot. So it's kind of one of those things. And then second, having been through this a couple of times, the stress of it can be overwhelming or not the relief. In my case, in my mother's case, she had some long-term insurance that I don't think you can get those policies anymore. So that it was no concern at all. We had everything covered through the insurance, which was great. But I, I know my neighbor, for example, is different. He doesn't have that kind of insurance. And there's a certain stress. Like, well, what happens when the maximum of the policy is hit? What do you do? Exactly. So even if a person has a long-term care policy, what they need to do is always to look at the duration of the policy. Right. Most of these policies at, at max won't go past seven years. Right. Current uh, <clears throat> ones. Currently issued policies. Exactly. Policies issued 20 years ago may have unlimited, but they learned the hard way it doesn't work. Exactly, Bill. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So those that are issued some time ago, there used to be policies that were lifetime policies. There were certain government employees that uh, would have had those kinds of policies. But right. now, even with those government employees, there are class action suits going on because the companies don't want to honor those policies because they're, they're bankrupting the companies. Right. So, you know, you, you really have to think, even if you have a policy, one, is it keeping up with the cost of living, you know, and, and exactly what will it pay considering how much the cost of care is now? Is it really keeping up with that? care? I've talked to clients who tell me they have long-term care policies. The answer when I ask is, uh, how long is the policy is usually a blank stare. When I ask how much they would receive if the policy paid out, there's a blank stare. We get these policies oftentimes through work and like, you know, no, what people normally do. You know, you don't, you don't read through that fine print to know these kinds of things. Well, you, by the time you need to know, it's too late. Um, so even if you have a policy, you want to have an estate plan 
that incorporates Medicaid planning strategies. I always say to people, you know, if you have an estate plan that doesn't incorporate these types of strategies, then you don't really have an adequate estate plan, do you? Because seven out of 10 people will have long-term care health issues and you didn't plan for that. I got really lucky that my mother, uh, my father was an attorney, though he didn't do estate planning. He had a partner did, he passed. My mother remarried an attorney who did estate planning. And he got one of these older policies that were unlimited and there's no limit on time or money. She wasn't sick that long, but it was expensive, but we it was covered everything. And I think that was just to know from the beginning, the relief of knowing we had an end game, right? Because if you know you can only cover the costs for two years before it starts impacting you, there's a stress you have to deal with. I didn't have to deal with that. And so these are all things that really require a comprehensive evaluation and are worth getting together and, and going into. Is it too late when when somebody's, I guess there's, it depends on the particulars, right? If somebody has physical issues and goes into a center, you've got some time to deal with it, though that's hard. I mean, I know personally it's hard once they're in a center to get their attention, talk about major issues, family issues, nobody has time and the stress and all that. And then also often physical issues are accompanied or caused by mental issues, right? That's a whole different area. So how do you, how do you anticipate, how do you, um, you know, make these decisions before it's too late to make these decisions? Well, if they have mental issues and they don't have the capacity to make decisions, obviously you can't do it for them. You can't sign powers of attorney for them or have them sign powers of attorney. At that point, they're going to be subjected to a conservatorship. And if they're under a conservatorship, you can uh, file petitions for substituted judgment. Uh, that this is something that the conservative would have done if they were uh, had the capacity to do so. And that includes estate planning, by the way. They can create an estate plan after, even though they don't have mental capacity. If you uh -huh. file a conservatorship petition, file for substituted judgment, you can have a trust created in their name as long as it is meant to benefit the natural objects of their affection. So whomever their next in line beneficiaries are is usually the way the court is likely to favorably rule on such a thing. And you can, I had a case where we had somebody who was a conservatorship and he didn't have mental capacity and they created a trust. But part of the problem was he couldn't help them identify all the assets. And they did this trust and he had a lot of real estate and a lot of different assets, but left out just a couple because he didn't know and they didn't know where the records were and they popped up later. And uh, and so it's these things are much better. It's much less expensive, much more accurately done ahead of time uh, than it is uh, when it's too late. So so let's talk about the process. So somebody who's interested, you know, I know in the back of the mind is, well, oh my gosh, I'm going to write this huge check for the legal fees. What's that process look like when somebody consults or walks in the door and says, hey, you know, we have some money, we have some assets, we have good health now, but we're planning for the future. What does that look like? Is that, you know, is there a case by case analysis with you? Is it more of a boilerplate? What, what's the process look like and what's the expense and how does that timeline out? Yeah, for the most part, it has to be a case by case analysis. And for some people, I might not recommend the Medicaid trust at all. It might be, for instance, depending on the amount of their assets that I, I say, and the, the uh, people that they have around them, that I might suggest, well, listen, you have your sister that you trust or your, 
your daughter that you trust. And <clears throat> instead of us creating a Medicaid trust, which is more expensive, why don't we just create a funding plan that will start to move the monies out of your name into that of your daughter or your trusted sister? So for a person of more modest means, that's that would be my recommendation. On the other hand, if you have someone who has a lot of assets, and uh, let's say we're talking about a person you know, with half a million dollars or a million dollars in the bank, and they have a house and perhaps a rental property. Well, uh, we have to devise a plan for how we are going to transfer those assets from the person who may be the Medicaid applicant into a trust, a Medicaid trust. And we have to do it in such a way that it will minimize the period of disqualification for the applicant. And there are certain amounts that you can transfer on a daily basis. And as long as you stay within the parameters of, of what the state allows, you uh, can transfer, let's say you can transfer $10,000 a day. Uh, you can transfer $10,000 a day um, for every business day of the month, that's $200,000 over a, a one month period. And you can get all of that $200,000 out of your name and put that into your Medicaid trust. It becomes a little bit more complicated when we're talking about investment properties. With an investment property, usually if, if you didn't transfer the property before 30 months before you did the application, because that's the look back period, what they call the look back period. The state looks back 30 months to see what you've transferred from your name to determine whether you have done something that's disqualified. California is unique in the country because elsewhere in the country, everywhere else in the country, the look back period is five years. The state can look back five years to see what transfers you've made. 60 months, California, it's only 30 months. Now, um, so you, you transfer those assets with, but when you're talking about something like a rental property, it's a little bit more problematic. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's a hard asset. You have to figure out how you're going to transfer the, the deed if you didn't do it 30 months before. So usually you wind up doing that with fractional deeds. And you have to, you have to literally create fractional deeds and transfer those in the same way that you would have with the cash on a daily basis. Well, wow. file those with the county registrar daily. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. But imagine some larger assets, you're doing a lot of that and uh, it pays off in the savings could be tremendous. Yeah, yeah. It, so people do that. I mean, it, they, they, of course, nobody wants to spend money if they don't have to. But if, if you spend that money to get that done, you're going to save so much more money over the long run that you won't remember having spent it. Um, you know, I'm kind of late in saying this, but you know, this is meant to be participative. So if you have questions, raise your hand in the application, put it in the chat box. Uh, you know, true confession, I do these interviews because I need to learn and I find a lot of value out of it. So I ask the questions I would have asked, but I appreciate you all being here. So if you have questions, feel free to raise your hand in the app, in the uh, Zoom application and or put in the chat box and we'll bring you in. We can have a little discussion add on. One of the areas that comes up from time to time, Bill, is on a probate. Uh, I know I've been in court where the judge will ask, how did the decedent receive medical care? 
and they're looking to see where their Medicare expenses that might be due. And oftentimes a family member doesn't know, I don't, you know, they'll say, I don't have any idea. And they'll want to verify they have private insurance or not. And if they discover there's either, they discover there's no private insurance or discover it was Medicare. What, how much of that is, is, you know, um, uh, and now a, a uh, what's we're looking for, a liability to the state and subject to being charged, how far back do those medical expenses go? And what kind of numbers have you seen of that kind of um, charge back to an estate? I just had uh, something like that come up this week on a case. Um, I've been going back and forth on for a couple of years, actually. But finally, we were able to get the state to uh, waive the entire bill. <clears throat> and this person had several hundred thousand dollars in medical expenses. Wow. So the and state's looking for several hundred thousand dollars and you got the whole thing waived. Yeah, yeah, we were able to get it away because and, of the size of the probate, because it, it really wouldn't have merited it. Wow. And I, I will tell you one other thing too, Bill. Um, there, and you, you mentioned Medicare. It's not Medicare that we're talking about. Medicaid, I'm sorry, yes. Yeah. Medi-Cal. Right, right. Um, but with Medi-Cal, um, <clears throat> there have been some significant changes over the last year or so. Um, it used to be that a Medicaid uh, uh, recipient couldn't have more than $2,000 in countable assets in the bank. Uh, otherwise, they would be disqualified. Well, that number has changed from $2,000 to $130,000. Oh, wow. Yeah, plus an additional $65,000 for each member of the household. <clears throat> now, there is talk. Once it's ratified, it, it's, there's a good chance that the state is going to do with, away with the asset requirement altogether. Wow. So that you could have... $2 million in the bank uh, and still qualify for Medicaid. But the, the big test will be on income. What kind of income are you uh, receiving? And so things like social security or your retirement plan or annuities and IRAs, um, well, those are uh, assets that will be looked at to determine how much of your own care can you pay for, to pay your share of costs. That, uh, so let me try to clip the language a little bit. I messed up, which is there's two basic federal programs for medical care. One's Medicare, mm -hmm. which is along with Social Security, everybody pays into and everybody benefits from. In fact, I can tell you, having recently gone through this with my wife, when you're 65, you almost have to have Medicare. There's almost no private insurance available or very little limited private insurance options other than supplements to Medicare, which is a federal program. In then we have another program called Medicaid, which is what's called means tested. It's designed to help people who don't have other resources, don't have access to medical care and such. Uh, in California, that program is administered by states. In California, we call it Medi-Cal. Medi-Cal is really California's version of Medicaid. In other states, there's different names for that same program. And that's the one that Bill was referring to that when a state passes, the, uh, the state government in the Medi-Cal program here in California will say, hey, this guy spent 10, 20, 50, $300,000 of medical expenses in his last few years of life. It, you know, they'll send a bill to probate and uh, to the state. And um, 
you want to plan to avoid that, obviously. You want to plan to not need to use Medicaid as an as a tool, and you want to be able to make sure that you um, can can uh, protect the assets as much as possible. And again, think about the surviving spouse. If, if it's your parents, it's one thing to say, well, we want enough money to pay for mom's care. That's great. But if all your money is used for mom's care, who's taking care of dad? And so you have to plan that in a way that um, is flexible and takes care of all the parties. So planning makes a lot of sense. So when somebody, and I, I imagine this call or the recording of it, there'll be people say, you know, I, I need to really think this through a little bit and I have and talk about a plan. Do you do consults with people or do you do webinars? How would somebody start the process with your firm in particular on um, putting together a proper plan, both for their, in general, avoiding medical disasters and, and those expenses and just in general, a good estate plan? Well, anyone can go to our office website, which is Los Angeles Trust law.com and register for our webinars lost you though oh there you go <laughs> um and register for our webinars uh we have webinars on probate and estate planning medicaid planning um, <clears throat> for our clients we have a more detailed uh, uh, webinar on how to be a trustee because of course people name friends and family members as their trustees all the time their successor trustees after themselves I'm um, but these people more often than not don't have any experience in being a trustee. So we have a detailed webinar for our clients on how to be a trustee, what they need to do. And with our clients, we also provide them free uh, consultations to kind of help them along the way. Uh, you, you mentioned one thing though, Bill, that made me uh, um, think that I should bring it up. With regard to people who are Medicaid recipients, their assets are subject to estate recovery for the monies that they've received from Medicaid at the time of their death. So when you hear the stories about people having their homes taken by the state and so forth, that, that's, that's real. Uh, and it happens at the time of the death, which means the family doesn't receive those assets uh, with some exceptions. So the family doesn't receive those assets. But one of the changes that has occurred over the last uh, two, three years is that if you have your assets in a trust, and I'm talking principally about your home, if you have that in a trust, the state cannot recover against those assets. So for the, those of you who are, uh, in real estate sales, that's something that's important to stress to your clients that they need to have their houses in their in a trust for many reasons. But that, if considering the number of people who wind up with long-term care health issues, that is a major reason to have your house always in a trust. Definitely, and I I think no, technically, I don't know the state takes the property, but the state just hands a bill to the probate and says, right. okay, you have a house that's worth a million dollars, you only owe us 200,000. Right. And the person here in the house goes, well, I don't have $20,000. They go, oh, no problem, just sell the house and pay us a share. Exactly. And so now the house you thought your spouse or your child was gonna live in, the family house, uh, they have a creditor that's gonna force them to do something with the property. And that, that's in essence how that looks. So um, really, really important to plan ahead. Give me an idea. I mean, I know that probate, 
you know, I know what it costs. I know what it costs to to do a basic probe administration. Of course, litigation it could be unlimited. What does a a proper estate plan look for look like in terms of the cost for a couple? Let's say an individual and or a couple, you know, owns a house, has some money in the bank, some basic assets, some maybe maybe family member too. Can you give me a range or an idea of what it costs to put a plan together? Well, it. it can range broadly. I've seen newspaper ads that say five hundred dollars to do your estate plan. Oh, there you go. So five hundred bucks. Okay, good. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, but uh, five hundred bucks to do the estate plan. But you can imagine that they're running full page ads in the newspaper. <laughs> the how many of those estate plans will they have to get just to pay for the ad alone? Right. I mean, how much attention are you going to get from that? Right. Uh, but I've also seen people, I talked to a, a colleague the other day, and she charges $6,500. So it, it, it could vary. I, I think it's reasonable to expect that you could find something. If you're talking, it depends on who you're talking about. A lot of people will say that they do estate planning, but they do it kind of that among other things. Uh, that's that's the one thing just if you stop there and I, I sure. know you're too modest to say this so I'm going to say it if you're going to go to a state planning attorney go to an attorney who just does estate planning or estate planning and probate or estate planning probate probate litigation elder law they're all kind of the same genre don't go to an attorney who does personal injury and bankruptcy and divorce law and blah blah and it you're not going to get a professional you can see when talking to bill that you're getting somebody who's really an expert in this area and go very deep and that's what you're paying for is expertise so i know you're too modest to say that so let me say that that you don't just want an attorney you want somebody who really knows this material well thank you for saying it bill <laughs> um yeah well that is true that is true i mean i i often say to, to people when i've done seminars that you know, you if you go to one of those places that uh, says we'll do this for five hundred dollars, why don't you just cut out the middleman and go to Staples and get the same forms that the attorney's using? <laughs> because that's really all you're doing is paying for some forms. Um, you you want to get somebody with some background, and I, you know I can't emphasize this enough. If you want to get a plan that has a plan of action for how you're going to deal with your long-term care health issues uh, yeah. as part of your planning. More and more, that's becoming essential. You know, I started in this quest, it was really more about the real estate, but the more I get into it, figuring out your strategy of how you're gonna pay for medical care long-term in a way that is dignified for the person getting the care, that doesn't bankrupt the family, that relieves the stress, the family knows that something is going on. Um, and, and I will say one thing too, Bill, that there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's some uncertainty about what's going to happen next year with regard to the asset test. I mentioned that there may come a point at which you can have a million dollars in the bank and still qualify. That right. may be the case, but we, we don't know until it's verified by certain authorities. Right. A couple great, uh, a great question we have in the comment box uh, from Sandra. And, and I come across this now. I, I don't think you would, though, because you're an attorney. If they're calling you, presumably you were their attorney, and they know the the answer. But uh, uh, Sandra asks, how can you confirm or check if you have a trust? I had one ten years ago. <laughs> so 
how valuable is a trust if you don't have the trust, if you lose the trust documents, what value is a trust worth to you as a, and if you didn't give copies, let's say to the uh, successor trustees or anybody else, what's the value of the trust in that case legally? Yeah, well, that's, it kind of sounds like, like if a tree falls in the forest and nobody is there to hear it, did it fall, you know? <laughs> um, if you don't have the trust document, you don't really have a trust. Right. If you don't have a way of locating the actual document, you don't have a, a trust. And that's problematic because people put their homes into the trust. It happens all the time. Yeah. And so if you have your home in a trust and then you can't find out you can't find the trust, nor can you determine who's supposed to be in charge of the trust. What is what are you to do? Well, the only thing you're going to be able to do is to try to go into court and whatever evidence you have to um, make your case that there is a trust and that you're the trustee, perhaps is you can uh, make the case of the judge. But the odds are going to be against you and you will wind up going through program. I'll say I've had cases. I work with tell companies a lot in these things. And I have a towel company. Now, part of it's they have to trust and know who you are and who you're doing with. And I have to vouch for them. But if the trust is the Bill Gross Trust or the Bill and Nancy Gross Trust, and Bill Gross is alive still, uh, uh, and particularly if they sign anything before then, maybe a deed of trust or a or mortgage or something as well, or grant, the grant deed into the trust, and they can verify the signature is good, I have a towel company that will allow that. Now, that avoids going to court. That's a big problem. If the person's passed, if they created the trust when mom and dad were alive, and now you have a successor trustee, that's a whole different problem that you need to call Bill and, and it's going to be, it's not going to be fun. You're not going to enjoy, he's a nice guy. You're just not going to enjoy that part of your relationship with him. I think that's the way I would put it. <laughs> so, right. um, okay, Douglas Converse, I see your hand up. Let's get you unmuted. And what, what do you have for us? Well, first of all, thank you for taking the time for this class. I've learned a lot. And I'd like to know, would you advise a probate real estate attorney to learn the process of being a trustee and teach it to people? Or is not that something? Not many people that I know who are uh, trustees are, uh, who work in the estate planning field act as trustees. Though there's nothing to prevent it, but for some reason, I don't see many attorneys who, who do it. I would always think it's a good idea to diversify your practice as much as you possibly can. And for, for, for my practice, what we do, we do probate. Uh, we, of course, do estate planning. We do Medicaid planning and we do trust administration because even though, um, you know, trusts are meant to keep you out of probate court, the reality is, is that there are still some hoops to uh, jump through in the administration of that trust. And oftentimes we will receive calls from people who are successor trustees. You know, they've taken over after the person has died or is disabled. And we consult with them on how to administer the trust. So yeah, Doug, I think it's definitely something that's worthwhile for you to do. That's great. Thank you so much. And, and well. another question, another question. Um, I am getting you know, my website put together and I'm starting to prospect to real estate attorneys. How can I approach them or, or, or not real estate, probate attorneys? How can I approach them with an item of value that might get them to want to do work with me? 
That's a great question, Doug. If I can just tee up a little bit for everybody else on the call, and then we'll have you answer it, Bill. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the uh, I'm in the I'm I'm in a couple groups that sell data of probate filings, and they'll say, "Oh, just all you gotta do is call the attorneys," and they'll take your phone call and they'll you know talk to you, and they'll and and when I talk to attorneys like Bill, he'll say, "Well, I get thirty phone calls filing," and and I know that's true because I've been a petitioner on probates. I have, a, and I'm open one right now, and I have a stack of mail and I get phone calls every day on it. So Doug asked the right question though, what can somebody do, not necessarily for you personally, but if they're addressing your colleagues and they wanna get in this business, they wanna do business with a attorney that does trust administration, probate administration like you, what are things that they can do that are value to you as an attorney that when the time comes, you might consider doing business with them? Hmm. Well, you know, if you're in business, you're, you, what motivates you most is self-interest, uh, no matter what. Um, um, if you are able to do a, a quid pro quo with the attorney in terms of the referral of business, obviously that's gonna get their attention. Um, to do a what? If, I'm sorry, if you are able to uh, have an arrangement with the attorney by which you give the attorneys something First, that's going to motivate the attorney to think more of you as somebody that should be on their radar. It, see, and at that point, it sounds to me like about 80% of probate cases that attorneys file come from a realtor. I think realtors imagine that somehow you generate all those on your own and then you're just giving out listings like they're candy. But I think in reality, from what I've seen, most attorneys will say, that by apes of the time the file comes to them with a real estate agent attached, either from the real estate agent directly or from the customer who has this relationship with attorney with a real estate agent. Is that a fair assessment? Okay. Yeah. And there's one other thing I think that you might consider, Doug, is setting up uh, seminars for your clients and inviting attorneys to come in and speak. Like today like today yeah and, and and douglas the reason why i reached out to bill in particular was after meeting him i went back to my office i looked him online and and not only did i see what i saw was he does this with his clients to develop business hosting educational seminars that he would appreciate my educational seminar right it makes sense some attorneys don't they're just they have other related ways of doing business and so i think that part of the answer is also find who your prospect is and, and try to figure out what they appreciate or ask them what they appreciate. And, and obviously in Bill's case, if you look at his website, you'll see he does seminars, webinars. He's really into educating his clients. And so if you can assist and support that, you can get his attention, find out what the, the attorneys are. Douglas, where do you sell real estate? Seattle, Washington. A lot of attorneys there, a lot of estate planning issues up there. So well, yes, uh, there are. yeah, so find out, Make a, I would say call a couple that you know, you know, and I always encourage agents, call your best clients, the ones that you know have an estate plan because they bought the property in the title of a trust. Ask them if you can, you know, who their attorney was that did it for them and call and ask that attorney that question. I'm just curious, what, okay. you know, what would you find of value? Okay. All right. Of course. Thank you so much. And I was approached um, by a, a realtor recently, uh, Doug, that, um, um, is selling properties at 
Um, and he was encouraging me to get my real estate license and then he would pay my office 1% for the referrals. Okay. Well, that, you know, that's, that's another way to look at it. I mean, I would imagine that that would be something that would be appealing to a lot of people. Yeah, I hear yes, that of course, exactly. And you, your answers have been awesome. I, I made, I just learned a lot. Thank you. Yep. And how, for how, cemeteries, how, I was like, for cemeteries, you do a lot of the work anyhow, the realtor. You might as well get paid. Other ones, you're not doing the work, and that might not, may or may not fit. So it's interesting. Bill. Um, okay, a couple questions we have. So the chat box, we'll try to wrap up here real quick. Yeah, What's the capital thank gains? You. Thank you, Doug. Uh, what are the capital gains on a single person, a widow, for a home sale? Um, what are the capital gains on a single person on a home before they owe taxes? Oh, what's the, I think she's asking, what's the capital gains exclusion for a home sale? Um, and I think the answer is 250 per person, 500 for a couple. Right. Yeah. So, to, uh, Linda, the answer there on a federal basis, there's an exclusion when you sell property, capital gains, which is, uh, uh, $250,000 for an individual, $500,000 for a couple, but that doesn't apply to the state of California. That's federal. It doesn't exempt you from California taxes. Surprise, surprise, California charges taxes on that. Um, I, I can't, I, and the last time I did one of these deals where a customer uh, was told they were excluded, and then he called me because he wasn't excluded. That was not a pleasant phone call. Um, Jimmy asked a question if you take an asset out of trust, is there a specific time frame to get back into the trust? Certainly before you die. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't need to keep it out for a certain period of time or in for a certain period of time. Really, you could deed it out one day and put it back in the next day. That's a common thing done on refinancing, right? We In the old days, we'd have to take it out of the trust to refinance the loan. And then as soon as recorded, we put it right back in the trust. Right, right. Yeah, there's an act in the state of California, well, federally, called the Garner St. Germain Act that um, allows you to put your principal residence into a trust and you don't have to notify the mortgage company at all so right. there's no real time frame jimmy in, in terms of putting the property back into the trust you, you just don't want to leave it out there too long and then have something happen to you and you know uh, you wind up having to go through the probing court um and then sherry sherry i think it is uh asked a great question also I'm a realtor working with two clients going through probate for deceased parent. Should I reach out to the attorney? And what should my conversation consist of? You know, I think I'll give you my answer, Bill. I'd love to hear your answer. But I always feel like if you're going to be working together with somebody, then the more communication always better. And so if nothing else, trying to get clear on who's doing what and what role you can play and what they expect, I always feel like communication is a positive. If, you're going to, if they're going to use you as a realtor, uh then you want to see what you can do to help the attorney get the th get the process moving as efficiently as you can i know for me i play the role of explaining some of the things to customers and helping them get papers signed uh because we do that all the time in our business but what would you suggest if a client had a you know uh, uh they're referring to you a probate estate and they have a realtor they work with do you want the realtor to call you and if so what types of things might you cover on, on a phone call like that well i want to know what their expectations are, uh, you know, one of the places that, I, that I've seen have, haven't done this for so many years, where uh, the realtor and the attorney can get off base is, is 
time expectations, when things need to be done. Right. Of course, as a realtor, you understandably are in a rush because, you know, this is how you make your money. You got to get that next deal. You got to beat the change in the interest rates. There's always a reason to rush. And I, I think it, it's always best to get an upfront understanding, no matter what you're doing with another person, as clearly as you can make it. I agree. And if, if you say to the attorney, listen, um, you know, well, the interest rate is changing. This is why we're doing this rush. Don't take it personal, attorney. Um, yeah. That's the attorney won't be upset with you and not wanting to hear from you if you should call. And um, but I think it's important that that you do open communications with the attorney. Um, and for a lot of reasons, it may be another source of business. Right. Yeah, I always tell my customers, there's nothing good that happens to real estate from the day you start that you want to sell it until the day closes. Uh, and the same is true with, with the probate process. There's nothing good that happens the longer you're in probate. It's just more expenses and more risk. But you know, sometimes we're more focused on the time issues and attorneys by nature have to be more patient because you can do what you want, but until the judge signs the paper, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> There's just not much you can do until the judge signs it. So, look, we've gotten a little late. I, again, you know, I'm sorry if I asked too many questions. I, I, Bill, I really appreciate your time. I know you and I've had several long discussions, and in as recently as a couple of weeks ago at the real estate event, it was great seeing you there. Uh, I meant to talk to you about that a little bit, but maybe for another day. I just want to thank you so much for your approach, uh, being educational, being open with us today, sharing with us. And thank you so much for being on here. If you're interested, Hayes Law Firm, again, is LosAngelesTrustLaw.com. And he has some great uh, video content, some YouTube videos, webinars, uh, and some really great educational material. So I just want to thank you for your role in the community and being on our call today, Bill. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. I'm honored that you invited me. Thank you very much. And for the rest of you, I'm really glad to have you on here. This is probateweekly.com. It should have been live streamed on YouTube. I'm not sure what happened, a little technical issue, changing my security of my YouTube account. But um, all that said, we do it every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. I know a couple of questions I couldn't get to. Feel free to text me or email me directly, 310-210-0008, uh, or at Bill Gross Probate. I just changed on social media, Bill Gross. And this is Probate Weekly. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a great week. I look forward to seeing you next week.